is from Nashville, and she is a psychotherapist, and she specializes in narcissistic abuse. Is that right? Yeah, any kind of basically psychological abuse, psychological warfare. Narcissism falls in there. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a single mama and both of my kids are grown. So I'm a single mom, empty nester, living my best life. I've been in private practice, um, mainly serving probably 60% of the demographic I serve is women or men in recovery from psychological abuse or warfare, spiritual abuse, anything around that. Um, so I, I stay very busy. I have a full client load and, um, almost too full to be honest, <laughs> but yeah. So that's, you know, kind of what I do. I've, I'm an author. I'm in the, in the middle of right now working with my editor on getting my first book published. Cool. So I'm staying pretty busy, living my best life and enjoying, enjoying life with adult children. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. How old are your kids? I've got a, my, well, my oldest is 22, just graduating from college this week. And then my youngest is um, 19 and he's just finishing up his freshman year of college. Awesome. So they're a lot of fun. Yeah, that's fun. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what it means, like the psychological abuse and narcissistic, like, can you explain that a little bit? Yes. Well, I mean, I can try to explain it. It's so complicated. So I'll, yeah kind of try to condense it just a little bit. The dummy version. (laughs) Say that again. Abuse for dummies. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just dumb that down a little bit. Yeah. Um, No, 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 never. We don't say the word dumb in here. Um, We don't say dumb. We don't say sorry. Oh, sorry. Bad bad words. Bad words. Um, We don't say bad either. So inappropriate. (laughs) Not beneficial or beneficial. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So it's kind of at the most basic level, psychological abuse can be emotion or emotional abuse. It goes hand in hand. It's really just the systemic malicious manipulation through non-physical tactics against an individual in order to control, in okay. order to keep whoever they're trying to control. It could be a child in a family system. It could be a partner, a spouse, a girlfriend, boyfriend. It can happen in the church. It can happen in a work environment and then in other types of organizations. But it keep, it's the abuser, whoever the abuser is, keeps the victim in a power down. So, in, and by doing that, they control, they do that through threats. They do that through threats of physical health, emotional health. They do it through, there's all kinds of diversion tactics I can talk about. Um, they do it through controlling freedom. Mm. Um, they do it through undermining and sabotaging. A big, a very big tactic that psychological abusers use is through isolation. Mm. Um, and so all of those things are um, executed against the victim, whoever that victim is, to control, to help keep their own narrative going, to condition them and condition their minds so they stay in a place of power up and then the individual is in a power down position. Mm-hmm. I think what you're doing is so important. I grew up in that environment and um, the person that helped me the most realize what was happening and that it wasn't like me doing anything really was um, our family therapist back when I was like 18. She, my stepdad had written this letter that was like, I kept it for a long time. I finally threw it away. Uh, but, but she went through it with me like line by line. And we talked about 
what he means by that and um, how this is not okay and what, um, you know, what the underlying issue was to each one of the things that he said. And it was so helpful and it helped me kind of break away from having any sort of emotional attachment to what he said or tried. You had an excellent therapist. She was great. Yeah. A lot of, yeah, a lot of therapists don't see it, um, especially when there is couples work going on and there's two people in the room. The um, abusers very can can be very charming and can fool the therapist. Mm-hmm. So the fact that your therapist was able to identify that and walk with you through it is exceptional. Yeah, she told my mom and I both that he was a pathological liar as well. So, which I feel like goes hand in hand with most people that are narcissistic. Is that mm-hmm. the case? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so. That's, that's important. And the, um, the emotional and psychological control that people like that have over you is crazy, which not only it's people, but you said something about organizations, mm-hmm. right? So, yes. yeah. So like cult following the news cycle. <laughs> right. I think about like the people's temple, you know, the Jim Jones cult. There's, there's cults going on right now there, you know, I don't know about Oregon, but here in Nashville, Tennessee, there's all kinds of churches on all kinds of corners and it's, it's thick here um, in the religious climate. Um, pastors who think that they are the only one that hear from God and can power over their congregation. Um, That's been one that's been really difficult for me to watch because I've been a victim of not only narcissistic abuse on a, you know, person to person level with different people in my life, but I've also been that victim of spiritual abuse as well. Mm -hmm. And um, it's now on the other side of that and actually trained and calling myself an expert in it, being able to see it on the outside looking in. It's one of those things that I'm really passionate about. Get super angry about it too. <laughs> I bet. Can you explain what spiritual abuse is? Um, well, it's exactly what I just said about it's this malicious manipulation to control, right? And so in spiritual abuse, what could happen is it could be in a marriage. It could be in that kind of a relationship where for a female, if you come underneath your husband's authority, according to what the Bible says, you you know, wives obey your husbands or submit to your husbands. um, That one gets used a lot, especially when women are um, in abuse, (laughs) they're being abused. Yeah. And they're trying to get out from underneath this and they have no support. And then there's this church or that says you have to stay in this situation because the Bible says you have to stay married. God hates divorce. God wants you to be married. And so someone who's been conditioned for years and years and years in marriage, who doesn't want to be punished by God stays for a really long time. And some stay forever in these relationships. And as a therapist, I have to, I have to, I get to, I choose to sit with my clients in whatever space they're in. I will never ever try to convince or make anyone do anything. I just am their empathetic witness and I help shine the flashlights and different cracks and crevices and the the best way to heal and get out from underneath any kind of an abusive situation really is more of knowing self mm-hmm. because it's that cognitive dissonance totally that's what keeps us that's what makes us stay in these abusive situations we have trouble reconciling that this is 
this thing true or is this thing over here true? My husband is a really great guy and I see him and, and I'm only speaking in terms of spiritual yeah, abuse right, right now. Right. Is a really great guy and he um he's a deacon in the church and he's an elder and everybody comes to him for wisdom and all of those wonderful things on the outside looking in are great and charming in this world that we live in. But then at home he yells at me and raises his hand or talks mean to me and is just terrible and can gaslights me. And so how do I reconcile that both of those things being true Mm -hmm. and in an abusive situation, there's been so much gaslighting and conditioning. It starts from the very beginning of a relationship Mm -hmm. in the, in the phase that we call love bombing. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, we're going to get all into that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so it's just a difficult thing to reconcile. And so rather than believe all of the data that's over here, that's true. We choose to, because we want to relieve the tension and the conflict within ourselves. We just go along. Well, maybe they are right. Maybe they are really a good person. Maybe it's me. Maybe, you know, a gaslighting or a projection could be well, you made me watch porn. You made me have that affair because you, you won't have sex with me because you're tired and you're up all night with the baby. Whatever that is, in the conditioning and in the gaslighting and projecting, the victim is so much in that power down with him over or her over because women do it too. Women are abusers too. Mm-hmm. Um, the victim is just conditioned to believe it's always their fault and they just need to pray harder or they need to serve their husband more or you know, if they do all of these things, then they'll be healed. And there are mentors in the church who preach that to women who need help. There are, or here's the other thing that people in the church do. They turn a blind eye to it. Uh-huh. The blind it's too eye uncomfortable really like for an epidemic, I think. <clears throat> a lot of women come in here and they have no one to talk to but me. Mm. No one understands them because their friends are in similar relationships. And if they actually have to listen to and empathize and sit with them in their pain, that means they have to look at their own situation Mm -hmm. and that's too painful for them. They can't do it. So they turn a blind eye and it's a very, very lonely place to be when you're in recovery from psychological abuse. Oh, it's so sad. It brings back so many memories too, because my mom was definitely wrapped up in that and she can definitely talk about it now and Mm -hmm. she recognizes it. Um, and it's been a really long time since she got divorced, but, uh, it's all of that is so apparent and it's apparent to people on the outside looking in when they kind of know what's going on too. And it's, it's, it's sad. Yes. As a person heals, Mm -hmm. one of my, one of my clients, I can't call any of my clients favorites, but one of my clients who has just had some exponential healing and growth through trauma therapy, which is very effective for this kind of abuse that I do. Um, she said to me recently, my noticer is just more noticey. And I'm like, that's exactly that's, right. You, that's, a good, you're no- that's a good way to put it. <laughs> you're, my noticer is more noticey. And I'm like, it is, what are you noticing? You know? And she just is able to see, it's like you can, you, I, I call it, I can smell one a mile away. Uh huh. I can smell an abusive person a mile away. I can have a five minute conversation with a man or woman and, and kind of pick up. And sometimes I don't really know why, but I feel it in my yeah. spirit. Like I feel it in my gut, like something's not right here. And I pay attention to that. And in gaslighting and, and the abusive relationship, whichever that is, 
you are taught to not let your notice or notice. Mm -hmm. You're taught, especially where spiritual abuse is concerned, you're taught that other people are an authority over you. Yeah. You're and that especially wrong. has come out from the uh, purity movement. I don't know what you know about that, but... Um, like not having sex? People not having know. sex, like the purity rings, um, oh. not having sex till marriage. Yeah. That was a big thing in the 90s and like 2000. Yeah. And so some churches would, you couldn't even date. You had to call it courting. Yeah. Re remember that author, was it Josh McDowell or something like that? He wrote a book. I, th I could be botching his name, but he wrote a book talking about how like, you shouldn't, you should only hold hands before you're married. It, and it was, I don't think it's Josh McDowell, but I can correct. I'm sure someone will correct us if we're wrong. I think it's Josh Harris. Harris. Yes. I think it was Harris. Mm -hmm. Which he has now come out and basically apologized for all of that. Yeah. Our but that, back in the day was like big into that situation. Mm -hmm. I always thought it was a little bit weird, but. Right. And so, and now I have clients who come in who are victims of that because all they did was hold hands. They had to take chaperones on dates with them. They were not ever um, empowered to trust their own instincts or their gut. They had to trust the chaperone who, if the person, the other person is a narcissist, they're going to be able to charm the chaperone. And then the whole thing is just, then they get married and they're like, oh my gosh, what's happened? I've married this what did I horrible do? person. And I was, I've been taught all along that I've gone underneath this umbrella of what, what Christianity talks about as the umbrella of God's protection mm -hmm. straight into this. I'm under the umbrella now of my husband's protection. And I've never been taught how to just be my own protection and trust myself and learn who I am. And so then in that culture, fast forward 15, 20, 30 years, I have women in my office now who want nothing to do with God. They've been so wounded and they're, you know, they're going through the divorce or they're still married to it and, and just has teasing all of that out and unraveling it. It's, yeah, it's an unlearning process. And again, so that gets back to the, how do you heal from something like this? You have to unlearn mm -hmm. everything that you've been conditioned to learn and then relearn. And, um, how do you think, um, how do you get people to, I mean, obviously they've already recognized when they've come to you that there's a problem, right. Of some sort, whether or not they know that it's an abusive relationship or what they are there because they need, they know they need something. But how do you get people that might not know that they need help to, is there anything that like should be a red flag that should be like, oh, this is not really healthy. You know, maybe the people that don't even realize that they're under the control of something. Mm -hmm. Well, they're like, coming to me for a reason. People? Yeah. So you, when I have a client like that, it's usually they're still stuck in that cognitive dissonance mm -hmm. and it's called, there's this thing called euphoric recall. Ooh, euphoric recall. I've never heard of that. Yeah. And that's one of the ways that we stay stuck is we can only recall all of the good things. Oh, that. Mm -hmm. And so if they're already sitting in my office and made an appointment with me and I'm building this therapeutic relationship with them. They, they know there's an issue. There's dysregulation. Their emotions are all over the place and they don't understand why. 
I can't say, well, I think I know that your spouse or whoever is a narcissist. That's not my place, right. but I might know it here. I can, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to force that. They will get there mm-hmm. when they're ready. Yeah. And then, but in that, I'm going to show them places where there's codependency. Right. Because okay. narcissists love codependence. Oh yeah, they do. We, and I'm a recovered codependent. So codependence we are like what we have like walking targets on our back because we will put everybody else's needs ahead of our own mm-hmm. we will we'll we'll say oh yeah that was my bad i did this wrong you're right um don't typically stand up for themselves we'll always just accept that it's our fault um at the most basic explanation basically a person who struggles with codependency is a person who does, pleases everything for everybody else, which is a great virtue, but at the expense of neglecting self. Yeah. And so narcissists love people like that. So I'll start there. I'll start with the codependency and mm-hmm. you know, every client's different, but I haven't had one yet that hasn't come to terms with, oh yeah, that's euphoric recall. We work through the, you know, one of the ways that we work through cognitive dissonance is just that, again, conscientiousness. Mm-hmm. Because what got us there is our agreeableness. Yeah. Again, that codependent piece. Agree, I'm so agreeable. I'm so quick to just go along with it. But the, the medicine for that is um, conscientiousness, learning self, learning who you are, what you like. And the stronger and more aware a person becomes of themselves, it, 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 it will happen. They will see it. Um, and a euphoric recall becomes less. Yes. Do you think this, um, your, how do you think you get that? How do you think you get to be to the point where you're codependent? Do you think that that is something environmental or do you think that that's just a part of your personality? Like more personality types kind of fall into that or is it more like environmental, like the way you grew up or trauma or? Well, so then we get into nature versus nurture, right? Right. Um, I think it's a combination. I really do. I think that some people are born with a sweet disposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be that could be nature, that could be nurture because yeah. things start stress comes it starts in the womb. Right. Epigenetics. Yeah. And if you are if you are growing in a womb with a mother who is stressed out, mm-hmm. all that cortisol is coursing through the mama, it's going straight to the baby. Yeah. And so the baby is going to take on some of that. So I think some dispositions start in the womb. Mm-hmm. I think some dispositions um, are made. Mm-hmm due to whatever that environment is, you know, like a a child who grows up in a family system where there's an, and I do not want to beat up on men. So I was going to say like an alcoholic father, but let's say it's an alcoholic mother. Yeah, A child grows up under this system. The mother rages. The mother's always yelling. It's scary. They're walking on eggshells all of the time, but the child is conditioned to believe that, well, mommy works really, really hard. She's tired, but she begins to make excuses for it. She's choosing to believe she's conceptualizing because children don't have that full prefrontal cortex developed yet, right? So it's all in how things are conceptualized growing up too, you know, and then the the dad can come in and make demands on the mom to clean it, clean her up, clean up her act. Mm -hmm. And the mom rages at the dad and the child can grow up thinking dad's bad, mom's right, mom's good. Right. Because they, that's too hard. Defend defend Mm -hmm. the one that's like being yelled at or whatever. Right. Yeah. So a lot of that's healed in like what I do is EMDR therapy. Oh God. I have been wanting to do that for a long time. 
It's such a fan. It's, it's amazing. I've done it. Um, I mean, I've done it on myself with a therapist Mm -hmm. and then I just see so many amazing outcomes with my clients when I do it with my clients. Yeah. I have a friend that's been doing it whose husband committed suicide and left her with three kids. (laughs) She said it, it has made a huge difference. She has other stuff too and goes counseling, but she was like, if you feel like you still have childhood trauma or whatever, this is what you need to do. I call it unsticking your stuck. Yeah. You know, whatever's stuck inside your little nervous system, the triggers that come up, we just go into there and we get them all unstuck and we reroute can that path, tell, that neural pathway. Our, can you tell our listeners what EMDR therapy is real quick, just briefly? Yes. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And at the most basic level, I have it way more like worded on my website, but at the most basic level to just explain it to anyone here, it brings balance back to your nervous system in the way that you think about a trigger. So you get a trigger, your body goes into a flight, fight, freeze response. It's like blowing your, it's like you flip your lid, you get hijacked. Your, all your logic and reasoning gets hijacked and you go right into emotion center and you think that you're in danger, mm-hmm. um, be, what, no matter what that trigger is. And that's just one example. So in EMDR, what we do is um, we go into the, whatever that stuck trigger is. It's a, it can be a target memory is what I call it. Mm-hmm. Not what I call it. That's what it's called. But, yeah. um, and we uncover that and we bring balance back to that memory through eye movements. And so it can be done sensory with paddles or earphones, but it can. I do eye movements like this where you would follow my eyes and it mimics what the brain does in REM sleep. Oh. And the brain heals. It does a lot of healing and regeneration in that REM sleep. If you've ever watched someone sleep and they're dreaming and you can see their eyeballs going back and forth. Uh-huh. Yeah. Their REM. So we pull up and we recall things while we're doing this reprocessing and then we neutralize the memory and then we instill positive cognitions all while we're doing the balancing back and forth from one hemisphere to the other. And at the end of it, it's a, it's very systemic and you, it, it takes training to do, um, through all of that. I don't, it depends on how many sessions a person needs. I did an intensive weekend last month and I did nine hours with a client and we ended up working through six target memories. Oh, wow. And, um, we just got it all in in a weekend on a Saturday and Sunday, but usually it's a 50 minute session and we'll just keep working through it. But you live, I mean, I've had clients who have literally said after one session, I feel like a new woman. And you know, when I did it, it was intense because I was getting trained and I'll never forget. I was working, I was an intern at a agent drug, a drug addiction agency. And I remember my coworkers saying to me weeks later, something's different about you. And I think it was, I think now I look back on it and I'm like, it feels like I would get easily stressed um, and emotional about things. And I just had a very calm presence about me and still do to this day. And they were like, we don't understand it. Something's changed. You're more efficient. You, all of these things. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I notice it too. I don't know. And then finally I was like, oh, it must be the EMDR. And, um, and that, yeah. I know that's what it was. Yeah. Interesting. Ooh, when yeah. I come to Nashville, maybe we'll have to carve out some time. Absolutely. <laughs> I need it. Um, that's, that's cool. I didn't know you did that. Um, so, okay. I have a couple of questions and let's see, do you see, um, 
Do you think society right now is being fed messages? And do you think that uh, mainstream is trying to gaslight us? And do you think that um, people are suffering from cognitive, cognitive dissonance in general when it comes to what's happening in our country? I'm observing that, yes. Um, that kind of leads me, can I, can I say my story I wanted yeah, to say? Tell us your story, I like that. It. I think the answer to all of those questions is yes. Um, and I think that's going to be really hard for a lot of people to hear. Mm -hmm. But I'll, um, I'm going to tell, there was a story that happened to me in November that really, that I think November is when I really became passionate about this emotional abuse that's going on in the political agenda right now. Mm -hmm. um, following the election, the, um, the world that I work in, social scientists, there's an awful lot and it's social justice. Most of my friends in through grad school, most of the counseling world really um, listened to mainstream media, everything about the administration of Donald Trump and Everything was narcissism. He's a narcissist. Trump's a narcissist. Mm -hmm. All of that. Um, and so media, I think, began this narrative. Well, I got off that train when COVID hit. And I actually flipped. I was um, pretty mad being an, an expert in narcissism and all of that. I was listening to mainstream media. Mm -hmm. So when COVID hit and everything shut down, I decided that basically my opinion was that this was fake. Um, I hated listening to the news. I felt like it was all lies. And so I just got off and started researching, started digging, started doing my own work outside of mainstream media because I had the time. Yeah. Um, and kind of came out of the closet with a couple of my friends that I was, in fact, still a Republican and um, going to vote Republican. And um, fast forward the election. And we all know how that went down. Yeah. So I remember talking to one of my friends who was on the other side of the street completely, like, Black Lives Matter, sign, love is love, sign, what, you know those signs I'm talking about, right? Yeah. In our front yard, one of my greatest friends, I mean, we got through grad school together, worked together. And um, I remember after the election going over to her house just like a few days later, I'd gone on a hike. I was trying to clear my mind and I was a basket case, completely distraught, crying, all snotting, ugly crying all over her. And she's just like, what is going on? Why are you so upset? So your person didn't win the election. Nothing's going to happen. The house is still going to stay Republican. You know, she's telling me all these things. So I sat with her and after I composed myself and I said, well, I'm upset because my First Amendment and Second Amendment rights are in question. I'm worried about freedom of speech. I'm already seeing censorship. I'd already gone off Facebook. I was so pissed off about every, all the censorship on Facebook that I went off Facebook before the election. Yeah. Um, we're being censored. Um, I'm going to lose freedom of religion. I'm going to lose my, I'm already knowing what's coming down the pipeline under yeah. this current administration. I'm worried about the vaccinations. I'm, I don't take vaccinations. Mm -hmm. Never. I haven't had the flu shot in 25 years. So I'm already an anti-vaxxer. Yeah. Um, what was the other thing? The guns, you know, second amendment, first amendment, yeah. all of that. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, I'm like, he's going to raise taxes. That's going to impact me directly. Gas prices are, they're like, why, why is that going to affect you? You're not making $400,000 a year. And I'm like, mark my words. 
What that's going to look like, if you just want to think a little bit, what that's going to look like is people who do make $400,000 a year aren't going to want to hire people to help them. Mm -mm. They're going to, you know, people are going to start getting fired. That is going to impact me. My grocery bill is going to go up. My gas prices are going to go up. I'm forward thinking here and I'm, yeah. I'm saying all Which of these all things. All the things have come true. So, yeah. This uh -huh. is in November. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm telling her all of these things through tears. This is what's wrong. This is why I'm so upset. And I feel like this election was stolen. Right. And she, after listening to me say all of that, she said, I think that you need to get in with your therapist because I think that you're in an abusive relationship with your political party. This is fear mongering. You are believing these lies. This is not going to happen. You're in, and again, that you're in an abusive relationship with your political party. And um, I, I actually laughed because I didn't quite, like I was kind of shocked and it's just one of those responses. Yeah, I didn't know what to say. Right. Well, I took, I, and I was like, well, am I? There was a part of me that's yeah. like, am well, I yeah. in an abusive relationship with my right, political party? Right, because you're a healthy mind. You always kind of want to question like, okay, well, does this have some weight or merit? Right. Yeah. So I took, I went home, I had to make this list and I, I've, I've talked about it before, but never like in a public forum, uh -huh. but I was like, okay, I, I want to, I want to like break it down yeah. to what exactly it looks like to be in an abusive relationship, uh -huh. period. Not even with your political party, but what does it look like to be in an abusive relationship? Yeah. I was like, okay, what are the tactics of an abuser? And I have like a 10 page Google doc that I've made that I, I used to lead groups and I give it to my groups and things like that. And I give it to my clients Yeah. and I started like going through it. And I was like, okay, so one of the tactics is love bombing mm -hmm. In love bombing. This is when, you know, you just, you're the, in a romantic relationship. It's like, okay, you're the best thing since sliced bread. You're, you're beautiful. You're wonderful. But also in love bombing, a lot of mirroring happens when the abuser with the victim starts mirroring and becoming and looking really good to the victim to hook them in. So it's like, oh, he, he's my religion. He loves all of the same foods I love. He likes doing the same activities I like doing. They mirror, they become whatever it is they need to become to hook you in. That's a part of the love bombing phase of a relationship. They do that so that the victim will then begin to have feelings of obligation towards them. And it's all about control. Okay. So then there's isolation. I'm just going to name them off. I was like, okay, so isolation happens when... When the victim starts to wise up, mm -hmm. they will pull that victim away from their family, their friends, isolate them, want all of their time, you know, take in the most extreme situations in isolation, they will like completely shut them out from the outside world so that they can't get help. They can't get support. They can't know the truth. They only know the narrative that the abuser sets up for them in an isolation type situation. Hashtag censorship. Just saying. Mm -hmm. So... Also in that isolation comes gaslighting, which gaslighting is basically, you're crazy. Yep. I never said that. You are making this up in your head. You heard me wrong. It's all to distort the victim's sense of reality. You, you heard that wrong. That didn't really happen. And so because the victim's already confused, isolated, wants to believe this love bombing part where, but they, they're wonderful. They like all of the same things I like. This is, these are all the good things. It's that euphoric recall. Right. They choose to disregard all of these other things. And it's like, well, they're isolating me because they love me so much, you know, right. they're keeping. And so that's, again, in a romantic relationship, but we can kind of see that, can't we? Yeah, we sure can. And so 
let's see, what are some of the other tactics? I already talked about the mirroring. They mirror the behaviors they know that you would like to see to hook you in. Mm -hmm. How many times have you heard someone say, he gets me or she gets me, but do they really? Yeah, do they? You know, like, is it too soon to really know that? So it's, you know, they study their victims really, really, really well so they can manipulate them. Mm-hmm. Again, I'll let you decide, is that, is that showing up? You know, the goalpost moving, they'll say, well, I will, I'll do this if you do that. And then you do the that, and then they change the rules, constantly changing the rules about what they said they were going to do or not do. Well, you know, think about, I mean, I know that like a kid will come home with all A's on their report card and the dad says, I'll pay you a hundred bucks if you get all A's on your report card. The kid comes home and he's got all A's and the dad's like, oh, but one of those was an A minus. So you don't get any, you know, that's like a goalpost moving kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Projection is another tactic used where rather than owning your own flaws or admitting that you might have something wrong or that you've done something wrong, I'm going to project all of that on you. I'm going to call out your junk to keep you from looking at my junk. Mm -hmm. So a partner could lie and then accuse you of lying, make up a story to what do they call that in politics? False flags. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, an, an employee will call their boss ineffective really just to kind of divert the attention because they're really the ineffective ones. Right. You know, blame shifting. My favorite one to talk about is flying monkeys. Flying monkeys. What's yeah, have you ever heard that term? I, yeah, I have. And I can't remember what it is. So flying monkeys is basically, there's two types. There's an innocent flying monkey. Then there's the kind that aren't, they just... They don't know they're a flying monkey and they're kind of a victim themselves. And there's the people that just ignore it. And they're like the henchmen. They're like the Wicked Witch of the West had her flying monkeys to do all her dirty work. Yeah. She kept her hands clean. Uh-huh. So in a flying monkey world with psychological abuse, they are the ones that stick close to the narcissist and they do the dirty work. Mm-hmm. They, they, get, they are the triangulators. They're the mother-in-laws, you know, of the narcissistic son who my son can do no wrong. Um, they're the friends. Think about like that movie Mean Girls. Yeah. You know, um, all of the flying monkeys that were around the main abusive person. Yeah. They triangulate their helpers into abusing so they don't actually have to do it. Hmm. It's, it's insidious. It's very insidious. Yeah. And then they'll also use smear campaign. So I'm going to smear your name to keep you from looking at me. Um, they spread lies. They use the flying monkeys to spread lies or they'll spread the lies themselves. We're seeing that like crazy, aren't we? Oh, yeah. So all of this in the smear campaign really is meant to expose the truth about you, truth about you to hide their own behavior. Right. So as I started looking through all of these different tactics of, and I didn't make these up. This is like the book of narcissism, right? Yeah. As I started looking through all of these tactics and doing what I do for a living, I was like, oh, hell no. I'm pretty sure I'm not in the abusive relationship with my political party. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we, people, we've, and it's all that cognitive dissonance. I, for, for that friend that did that, she really does believe what she believes. Right. And so she's in her own cognitive dissonance because it's easier to believe orange man bad, you know, oh, than so much easier, <laughs> you know, it's easier to believe in uh, even what CNN has come out recently, you know, well, I say CNN's come out. James O'Keefe has just exposed CNN through video, you know, of all of the things that they've done, all of the propaganda. 
and everything for this cause that that's all smear campaign it's all crazy it's all to keep the narrative going yep Control. It's control. It's to keep everybody in control. Mm -hmm. So that is what I see going on right now. And it's so frustrating because like, why doesn't, I want everybody else to see it. Right. But how do you think we got here? Like, okay. So I have this, I I like to explain it is what I feel because I live in Portland and I watch these little like kids with black block and like Antifa try to like burn down our buildings and shit. But it just happened out of nowhere, right? Like we've had kind of an Antifa problem like for a while, but it's it like, I know, but it's almost like a, a switch got flipped and it got really bad. Like it's like somebody activated an army and I like to explain it like in Zoolander when um, Derek Zoolander got like mind controlled or whatever when he hears that song to kill the prime minister of malaysia it's almost like somebody flipped a switch and they're like must do this and like Mm -hmm. they're going down on their path and i just is it possible for for like almost like subliminal messaging so much that to be completely manipulated into a cause like that? Does that make sense? Well, I, I believe that if that can be possible in one-on-one relationships and in family systems through conditioning, that it's very possible to do that on a large scale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not to be called or labeled a cons- what, what culture would label a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe that you, you add mainstream media on top of social media, on top of, it's in music, whatever you put in is what's going to come out. I I think there are so many factors involved in the demoralization and the breakdown of a system so that we can't have control. Um, That's a, that's a really, that's a whole nother like series of shows to talk about that. But have you watched um, the interview with Yuri Bezmanov or whatever? Mm -hmm. Did you watch that? I did. It It was scary. Really scary. And it it feels like we're kind of seeing that play out though. Mm -hmm. Like that's been going on for so long and we're just seeing everything kind of come to a head. Um, Right. The average person who does consume things like CNN on a regular basis and believes Orange Man bad, like they don't even, it doesn't even compute. Mm -hmm. They can watch that and still think, oh, that's what Trump's trying to do. (laughs) Right. Right. And I was one of those people, like I flipped, I was one of those people. But you flipped when you actually started doing the back end research. That's when I flipped too. Yes. I mean, I didn't never, I was never on the orange man bad bandwagon, but I also didn't have such an opinion until the shutdown. And until I started watching the press conferences and then watching the, how the media portrayed them. And then also going back and watching that um, in Charlotte's whatever, I, watching that whole speech and reading the transcript, like wait, they've been lying to us for the entire time. And then I got into the whole WikiLeaks thing and I read mm-hmm. the emails from Hillary Clinton to the beast and all of those, like, this is how we are going to portray Donald Trump. Absolutely. It's sitting there for everyone to read and everyone to look at. And I just, it's crazy that not more, I think more people are than what we think just because we're bombarded with the anti, Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people are afraid to come out of the closet. There's a lot of fear. I was. Yeah. I stayed in the closet with the, I was told, um, I remember when I went off Facebook in November, I made an announcement. I said, I do not agree with the censorship that's going on. I do not agree with this. 
And I kind of made it funny and pithy at the mm-hmm. end. And I'll tell you, and I'll, you'll know in a minute. And I yeah. said, I also believe that all lives matter. And I said, for that reason, Facebook, you're fired. And I got off. Well, this same friend that I had just talked about said to me, I'm really concerned. I know your heart and I know your mission for people, but I'm really concerned as you're building your private practice that people are going to observe you and see you as culturally insensitive and it's going to hurt your business. And my response was, if they see me that way, they see me that way. They're making a judgment on me based upon something like that. And I, that's not the kind of, you know, if a client's going to do that, that's not my client. Right. So I didn't change my mind. I let it run its course and my business has probably doubled since then. You know, I have a full-time private practice. I had another person who ran into me in the waiting area. I'm at my office right now, Uh um, who is a friend. Um, she wasn't seeing me there. I'm in a practice with other therapists Yeah, and, um, I remember running into her in the waiting area as I was on my way out and I sat with her and chatted with her for a minute. She's known me for about 10 years and she's watching me on my Instagram. And she said, she said, when did you become a Republican? And I said, I have always been a Republican. She was like, really? I said, yeah. And she went and then she kind of pointed around the office space and she said, how do you do this? And I said, well, I have a thriving private practice. I'm doing it. I don't bring my politics into my space with my clients. It's not about politics. It's about them and their healing. You know, what I believe in my politics stays out of the, out of the counseling room. Mm -hmm. And, um, she was like, Oh, I go, yeah, I really, I think I do a pretty good job at that. Um, it's, it's, there's no place for politics in helping someone in their own recovery. But that's the thing. People can't possibly understand that I could be an empathetic, loving individual that, that nurtures and fosters healing if I'm, po- if, I, if I'm a Republican. I would argue that you're probably more empathetic and you probably are more focused on healing because you're not into – I personally have had a hard time finding a counselor that I like because I don't want to go to a flaming liberal because mm-hmm. they don't have the same sort of – like work ethic belief in yeah. that's rooted in what I think society should be mm-hmm. um, basing a lot of things off of. I think that the empathy that that is portrayed in that form of thinking is very um, it's very selfish empathy. Mm. It is selfish based, and we see it in Portland a lot with a lot of the policies that get passed with the homeless and all of that. It's mm-hmm. like you actually are passing this policy that makes you feel better. This isn't Mm. helping the person. This is you feeling compassion for them. But that's only your compassion. Sometimes the compassionate thing is doing the thing that might feel like it's harsh or like it's not okay. Sometimes doing the good, the best thing is telling the person what they don't want to hear in order to make them feel like actually make them better, not just make them feel better. Right. That makes sense. Or challenge them to, you know, and there's a therapist for everyone. You know, I'm not everybody's cup of tea. Totally. Neither am I. (laughs) And there are, I will say there are some fantastic therapists in Nashville who are Democrats. Right. Um, and I'm friends with some of them. I don't even think like traditional Democrats are the problem. So yeah, but yeah, I don't know. It's just a difference in philosophy that I feel like is apparent in a lot of areas when you move too far one way or the other. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, and I've had, I've had clients who've asked me, are you, are you MAGA? 
And um, my response to them is like, is that important to you? Uh You know, like I'm always going to turn that around and and ask a question back. What that seems to be really important to you. Tell me more about that. You know, Mm -hmm. what's your definition of MAGA kind of thing? Right. Um, What does MAGA mean to you? Exactly. So I'm not advertising. Of course, I'm here as a psychotherapist on your show and we're talking about psychological abuse and politics. Yeah. But um, that's not something I just have a sign on. Part of me wants to put an American flag on my wall right there. (laughs) So... see what happens. I'm tempted to do it. Is this a trigger for you? Because this might be something we need to talk about. (laughs) If the American flag triggers you, we have some problems. I thought about buying a Trumpy bear, you know, (laughs) you remember, and putting it like right there on the couch. (laughs) I almost bought one of those for my son for Christmas as a joke, but I didn't. (laughs) Goodness. Trumpy bear. The best commercial ever. It's like on his lawnmower. But I got my Trumpy Bear. <laughs> it made me laugh. It's cute. That's so funny. What I think is really funny too. This is a little bit of a change of subject, but um, it's hilarious how like Jen Psaki said something the other day and basically called all like Trump supporters or Republicans um, hillbillies and or rednecks. She said rednecks. And I'm old enough to remember the day when Republicans were the rich people. Mm-hmm. Me too. When did that change? <laughs> Hold on a second. So now you're seeing that we're like poor rednecks who yeah. like are gun-toting whatever? Like, stop. There's a wide mm-hmm. range of people. There's a wide array of people that like or are Republicans. Well, we've stepped up, though, because we were deplorables. Yes, that's true. That's true. We were deplorables. But that, I mean, that narrative now we're hillbillies. basically just changed within the last, like, yep. I don't know, 10 years or it's... something. When I was a kid, it was like, oh, well, you believe in, like, corporate America and blah, blah, blah. And now the champions for, like, the Democrat Party are all huge corporate entities. <laughs> what? Yeah. It, that's the part that it doesn't make sense. It's no, insane. It it's just... sense. No, you, there's you, no sense making of it. No, you get caught in this like mental loop when you try to think about it too, because it just mm-hmm. it ends up going like this. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm just right. Yeah, yeah. but anyways, we solved all the world problems. Well, if I were, you know, if we were in charge of the world, you know, totally. Oh, I have one more question. I have one more. Okay. Question. Do you think that what are the? Okay, I know most of your clients are women, right? Most of yeah, them. I. I got a handful of men but yes um is it correct I feel like a lot of women um aren't really it's not as common to recognize a narcissistic woman as it is a man because men get pegged that way a Mm -hmm. lot Mm -hmm. is that true I mean I don't have any evidence to support that statement no but from experience I can see where that, that that's a fight yeah and I do think also narcissism is one of those buzzwords right now mm-hmm. everyone's I a narcissist I agree with that yeah and I have clients Enjoy. who come in I have clients who come in and ask me my wife says I'm a narcissist and I want to fix my marriage and help me am I a, and they ask me am I a narcissist and mm-hmm. I'm like well 
why would you think you are? Like I have to go down the list and, you know, and we can work with that. But I think it is also one of those words that is used way too much. Yeah. We add that to the list of like fascist and racist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have to go back to the last two. As the social scientist, I have to go back to where's the evidence in that. Right. Totally. Interesting. Do you think that if somebody's coming in and asking you, am I a narcissist? Usually are they a narcissist or is it more like you're coming in and asking so chances are you might not be because normally narcissists aren't like dissect dissect my problem right or no right um give me just one second i have a client like right now waiting in the waiting room for me we, we can go let me just say i'll be a few minutes okay um if someone comes into my office and they're already asking me that question chances are they're not because one of the number one things in narcissism is there's no empathy. They can't see things any other way, but their own way. They're not willing to take a look at themselves. Um, and everything is everybody else's fault. Mm-hmm. They can't own anything on their own. So, you know, there's five different types of narcissists out there too, by the way, which we don't have time to get into that one today, but no, you can, you can be like a vote covert yeah. narcissist and come in and play that role yeah, and say, no. am I a narcissist? Mm-hmm. And they really, might be but at the end of the day I don't diagnose no um, but I will help you uncover what yourself and then we can work towards whatever that goal is and Mm -hmm. you know a client may come in and say well my spouse says I'm a narcissist and I want to work on my character defects so that I can improve my marriage right that's something I can work with with you we can set that goal totally and move forward awesome but um, typically if they come in and say I think I'm a narcissist am I they usually ask am I the narcissist Right. And that could be, you know, because uh, their spouse has called them one. Yeah. You're a narcissist, you're a narcissist, and they're the real narcissist, and they're projecting. Uh-huh. And I've had that happen before. Yeah. Um, or it could be they're just really um, – the other thing is someone who does look at themselves in the mirror, someone who can take on and go, this is where I can own my faults. This is, this is what I did wrong. Someone like that who's very, very agreeable, Mm -hmm. they can actually be conditioned to believe everything is all their fault and they really are the narcissist. So it's, it's a complicated thing. You got to tease it all out. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you. Thank you. Tell everyone how to find you. You have a website. What is it? I do have a website. It's um, just like my name, Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-I-N-O-R-V, as in Victor, E-L-L.com. Easy. ShellyNorvell.com. And clients book book with me through my website. They reach out to me through email through my website. And um, Do you talk about your book on your website? I haven't yet because I'm still in the process of editing it. I think there might be a few little things on there. I'm about, about to start putting some videos on. Cool. Um, Sweet. Don't talk a lot about politics on my no, website. No, but everybody needs. Yes. Everybody needs a little therapy. Yes. So but the the book is called Throwing Stones, and it's about my own heal. It's going to be a series of three, um, and it's about my own healing journey from psychological abuse. Really wonderful. So look forward to reading that. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will have you on again soon. And I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. All okay. right. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>